episode four of the complete Anya Varda. I am Matt Gastire. I'm here as always with my co-host Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? I'm doing well, Matt. How's it going? Uh, it's going okay. Uh, there's some some discordant uh, electronic tones in my ears, but um, other than that, um, I'm getting through the day. Yeah, um, I've been the... getting really pissed off, but it's only for a minute, so don't <laughs> yeah. worry about it. You know, I was going to say something, um, but I drove by your house and I saw you beating somebody with a dead cat, and it was very, very awkward. Um, the good news, though, is that uh, for the very first time on this season, I don't even know if David Blakesley is aware of this, um, uh, we have a guest, and it is David Blakesley. David. How are you today? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling very honored. I was seeing red just a few minutes ago, but you've calmed me down with that uh, very nice <laughs> distinction that uh, that I'm the first guest on your uh, complete Varda coverage there. But very excited to be here, and great to hear your voice again, Matthew and Travis. Of course, you and I just chatted not the other not too long ago. But yeah, that was yeah, fun. Yeah, it was a good time, and that's my Luis Bunuel episode of Criterion Reflections, and that's on CriterionCast.com, but enough of my self-plugging hype there. <laughs> let's uh, let's get ready to talk some Varda. You've talked about um, her uh, her next feature twice, I believe, right? For both for your Eclipse series and for your uh, Criterion Reflections podcast. Uh, is that Uncle Yanko or is that Lion's Love? I mean, Lion's, Lion's Love, Love, yeah. yeah. Yanko, That's the feature. Yanko, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sub, sub 40 minutes is a, is a short. Gotcha. And the Black Panthers. Yeah, we, so, yeah, yeah. I did do the, uh, the Eclipse Viewer episode with Trevor years ago with the uh i Varda, was it in california was that what that was called yeah mm-hmm. and then i did a separate segment on lion's love where we kind of recap that when i was kind of getting the criterion reflections uh, going there uh, that's a 69 film is that correct or was 68 it? or 69 i think it was 69 no, 68 well okay um yeah it was made in 68 but I, I think, yeah, it didn't come out until 69. Right. And, right, and that was season one of Criterion Reflections in the podcast format. So, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, enjoyed my uh, opportunities to, you know, just get deeper into Agnes Varda's catalog. Uh, and the one we're going to talk about today, or the two, actually, uh, were new discoveries for me. Um, what was the first Varda that you encountered, and what, what has been your experience so far with her work? What I, the very first one I ever watched was La Pointe Court when I was going through mm. in the Criterion Reflections when it was a blog, oh, and wow. that's where I was doing everything in chronological order. Now, I had never seen Chloe, I had never seen Vagabond, I'd never seen uh, any of her other stuff that I'm aware of. So, I think that was my first exposure to her, which was her very first film, and I was extremely impressed, especially given how early in the 50s it was, and it felt like such a forward a modern type of movie and uh you know i did some reading you know just to prepare for that blog post and recognize because that, that was part of the uh four films by Agnes varda dvd set which had uh the, the three that i mentioned what oh and le bonheur and le bonheur yeah. yeah so those are those are really four uh, outstanding films uh, but yeah, and so that's been about it. I saw uh, One Sings, The Other Doesn't. I did the uh, Nausicaa, which was kind of a an interesting relic from, it um, wasn't was like a made-for-TV movie that got censored. I did that as part of Criterion Reflections podcast as well. But I've really just sort of jumped around. Uh, I've also seen uh, 
Faces Places. That was when it was new. And there's probably been a couple others that I've dabbled with inside the big Varda box, but the, the titles are escaping me at the moment. So one of the things I'm really excited about you guys getting this season going is I, I do want to kind of follow along and, and watch them all because, you know, obviously she's an incredibly talented artist and the uh, just the humanity that comes through, even even like the introductions to the films that we're going to talk about today, just makes me just so intrigued with, with who she was, what she was about, and how she kind of maintained her artistic high game for a long period of time, like really throughout her entire adult life. And again, as kind of the, uh, you know, one of the founding figures of the French New Wave, um, you know, obviously a huge place in cinematic history, but uh, just there was something that even just transcended her role as a filmmaker. Um, there's there's something really wonderful just about her quality as a human being that I really want to engage with more. So I think, uh, you know, your episodes will be a nice catalyst to, to kind of spur me along, and, and I'm sure others will probably follow along in the same way. Yeah, that dovetails with a lot of um, what we've been talking about mm -hmm. uh, for the first few episodes. Um, it's just it's such a pleasure to, to listen to her. She's um, obviously uh, so smart and, and um, perceptive about films, but I think it's um, especially refreshing how open and honest she is about her own work and, um, you know, the, the strengths and limitations of it. And I think the film, the feature that we're going to talk about today is a perfect example of that. Um, but I think before we get into, uh, the feature that we'll be covering today, which is, um, I'm not, I'm not even going to bother pronouncing it in French. It's the creatures. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, we wanted to, uh, touch on, uh, the short that she made, uh, just prior to this, which is called Elsa La Rose. Um, and, uh, it's a, um, very interesting work that I think pairs kind of nicely with um, Le Bonheur in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, before I uh, sort of spill the beans on how I felt about it, um, I'm curious um, what your thoughts on it were, David. Oh, very delightful, really. I didn't really have any expectations going in. I did watch the introduction and sort of got the sense that this was kind of an interview, a celebration of Louis Aragon, who was, he's a name I've, I've kind of heard here and there. I guess he's kind of part of that larger surrealism on the literary side and a poet. Um, and that, not necessarily subversive on her part, but even though she was there to sort of interview him and he was maybe the more known or celebrated figure in French popular culture at the time, the movie really becomes more of a tribute to his wife, uh, Elsa, you know, Elsa the Rose. And uh, and she was a published writer herself. But really, I mean, my takeaway from it personally was just a really delightful portrayal of a marriage that was also a, a very deeply felt artistic partnership. Um, you know, I've, I've been married to my wife for 37 years now, maybe, no, 38 actually. And, um, yeah, and so that's about the same length of time that, uh, that, uh, Louis Aragon or Aragon, I guess is how she refers to him by his last name and Elsa were married. And so I have, have a certain, you know, um, you know, relatability to that just for the sheer length of time. And even though my wife and I are not artists anywhere near the, the, the level of the 
both the subjects and the filmmaker and her husband Jacques Demy, uh, you know, that, that tenderness and that sweetness of a love that's mellowed and matured over the years. I could definitely relate to that. And that was just a nice little uh, discovery there of her, you know, using uh, her technique, uh, interviewing and, and opening these people up. And, and these are obviously people who are very used to being very expressive. Um, but, but you know, she added in her own dimension with some of the visuals, the editing, uh, all those portraits of Elsa through different stages of her life. And, uh, you know, the you know focusing on her eyes and how some of the poetry that her husband wrote uh, kind of as a tribute to her kind of synced with with uh, you know the the uh, the reading by Michelle Piccoli so yeah it was a very pleasant little 20 minute uh, excursion into another couple's life yeah the uh, the concept that she put together for it I think played off really well um, doing a piece about Elsa but through the memories and thoughts and imaginings of her husband and what he thought her life would be and what her life was as a child and as a youth before he met her. And then, yeah, like David said, just kind of like her being his muse and then listening to her talk about how, like, oh, that's that's rubbish. Like, I'm just, I'm just a person. <laughs> yeah. I'm just a person. He's just, you know, he exaggerates everything. And it just, it was it was wistful and playful. And I, I really enjoyed the concept. And I thought it was interesting that this was going to be part of a like a, a, a double kind of thing yeah. where uh, her husband was supposed to do the piece on Elsa reflecting and thinking about uh, Aragon. And <laughs> Jacques Demi said, man, I'm done. I don't want to do that. And just bailed, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, just makes me laugh because she's like, well, I'm stuck with this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Cause I like this because, uh, you know, she's not going to bail on her project. And, I have always, you know, we've talked about many of her shorts at this point, and my favorite, my favorite part about him is just that how, how playful she is, like, which, you know, playful and also kind of subversive at the same time. You know, when we talked about her travelogue films, you know, it's fun and but also poking fun at the same time, and this one is still doing the same. You know reading these really intense poems as fast as human as fast as mm-hmm. uh, Michelle Piccoli could do it and then having having Elsa just be sitting there being like yeah no I mean I know he says I'm his muse and I, I'm doing all the work and everyone comes and talks to me and he's like no I'm just I'm just a normal person you know he sees me this way I, I don't know what he's talking about <laughs> and it's just it's beautiful it's an absolutely beautiful and honest relationship but it's honest because of her words and not because of his viewpoint, which I found absolutely wonderful. Yeah. I, um, I think, uh, you know, she describes her direction to, uh, Michelle Piccoli as, um, uh, reading it as if you were a priest trying to get through mass. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And, and I really, I mean, what I came away from this piece with and I think, David, you're certainly right. There is a wonderful portrayal of what I think uh, se- seemingly was, and Varda certainly believed to be um, a loving marriage. And I get super uh, into any 
personal stories uh that like old people tell that's mm-hmm. just like my mm-hmm. thing yeah <laughs> like yeah. so if they're gonna like talk about you know the first time they met each other at a dance like i'm all in just show right. me oh, yeah. four thousand of those stories right. and i'm good to go and when but, they you know, she walks through those swinging doors kind of recreating that moment of first oh, encounter totally very, very it was gorgeous the reenactments she's having yep. them do older mm-hmm. as when they were to- told to met that was just absolutely like I, I love that stuff i love that that's the playfulness i like about like let's not try to worry about facts this is stories that they're yep. telling about each other which I, I i just love that concept but it's also the use of cinema to uh comment on it right i mean the way that that they she is almost filming their meeting in order in order to recreate it but at the same time it's them playing themselves at at the this the contemporary age so there's no you know there you're you're constantly being reminded of the fact that it's a recreation mm-hmm. um but i think you know the the readings of the poems and the way that she juxtaposes that with um her discussion with elsa about the poems really struck me as a kind of damning indictment of of the um the reception of work like that and of the basically just entire notion of a muse Mm. um and i have to you know wonder how much of and you know i'm sure obviously like there's a lot that's um autobiographical about the creatures so we'll be discussing this throughout the episode but i just have to wonder how much of her experience with demi fed into this idea that like you know the woman is not just not only being defined by the man but in this completely fictionalized and idealized manner that is not representative of the uh actual genuine uh experience that these two people have had together and the the true reasons that he you know has this enormous amount of love and affection for her do you know how many years Jacques Demy and Adna Svarda had been together like by 66 when this film was made um do you know Travis it they... has it has to be around because they were married with Cleo from five to seven yeah so right. it's probably got to be at this point it's got to be at least eight years I think. Okay, I so know. they were married in the late fifties, then I don't even have an, a concept of that. I don't know if they were married in the early sixties, mid. Yeah, they were married in sixty-two, but okay. they had been together um, for for a few years before that. I sure. believe. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So um, yeah, I just wonder if if Adnes had a sense of this as sort of a a template or a preview of how her marriage to Jacques Demy might go, as as they're well, two pretty committed I, artists, you know, growing up yeah. together, right? But, but certainly by this point, you know, Cleo from five to seven had obviously gotten, um, you know, it was well received in France, um, not as, uh, you know, successful in terms of box office. And while it was released in the U.S. and other places, it, it wasn't lighting up this, the, the, the review pages. Um, but by this point, Demi had made um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Right. And, which was huge. Which was, yeah. A smash mm-hmm. success mm-hmm. um i assume by this point um if if he wasn't in talks to go to hollywood yet he was certain there it was certainly a possibility um at this point so i i just have to assume that there was this sense of Demi as the you know cause celeb 
at the time mm-hmm. versus Varda, who, you know, had been making movies longer than Demi had, but did not garner the same level of attention. And of course, within Varda's circle, which included this, uh, you know, people associated with this couple, um, is was mostly men who were more famous. I mean, even someone like Simone de Beauvais, uh, um, you know, was in a relationship with Sartre. And right. Like, right. So, I mean, th- there was definitely like a perception, even among women who were artists of being subsumed by their male partners. Yeah. 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 Even with this progressive and, you know, kind of artistically enlightened and engaged uh, community, there's still sort of the, the, the preeminent role is occupied by the man and the woman. If she has some talent, she can sort of be a, a side player. There's kind of an assumption or kind of a, a gender role expectations that I'm sure were almost unconsciously imposed. Like that's just how it was or how it is. You know? Yeah. And, and I also think like even beyond that, there, there, sh- her, sh- she did seem to be commenting on the dehumanization mm-hmm. of of Aragon's poetry, you know, there it, it's it's so florid and over the top in its effusiveness uh, about the perfection of this creature mm-hmm. that um, you know there's no possible way that any human being could live up to that perception. Well, it was kind of a hyper romanticized, and it was almost kind of playing to a popular audience, right? I mean that that yeah. the readers kind of like that kind of thing. The you know right. we'll just put the woman up on a pedestal and sing her glories, and there's a certain conventional comfort food poetry, you know, aspect to that, which I think Aragon was probably playing to. Uh, just as Jacques Demy was playing to sort of broader audiences, more of a commercial angle even though it was a brilliant you know umbrellas is one of my top 10 movies uh, and has been for a long time but it, it yeah. certainly plays you know very very friendly to a wide range of audiences uh, and it uses color and music and and of course casting and acting and 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 the heartbreaking pathos it's a it's a message that any viewer can relate to if you if you can get on board with the all singing and some of the artifice of it once the story grabs you it's just you know, it just completely hits home. Uh, Anas Arna's films, you know, never, you know, run the risk of what you might call pandering, right? Or or playing to the cheap <laughs> seats or lowest common denominator. She's always got that challenging artistic angle that sometimes requires a little bit of adjustment on our part to get on the same wavelength with. And that's when the rewards come along. But on, on first glance, and that's I'm sure what we'll probably talk about when we get to the creatures, is, yeah, this is a little abstract. You're going to have to do a little bit of work to maybe understand where she's coming from with it or what she's trying to express and communicate there. Yeah, it is really interesting just how much artificiality there is in Demi's work in, com- in comparison to, to a filmmaker like Varda who primarily was a documentary filmmaker <laughs> yeah so you know that, that been nice. contrast is interesting yeah it would have been nice to see demi's side the other side of that this piece yeah, because i'm sure. sure it would have been completely different and maybe even a little more standard which you know might not have told the same uh you know layered nuanced story that uh that uh varda was doing in her uh short film yeah but i do think we we end up with those um dual works in things like Lola and um, Cleo 5 to 7 
hmm. versus versus uh, model shop and lions loves and lies mm-hmm. where you know their yeah. their first features in los angeles i mean you could I, as much as model shop actually has a ton of ambiguity to it and is a very complex and interesting work um uh, very unlike most of uh anything else to me made really um it's still significantly more conventional than than any you know five minute stretch of lions loves and lies yeah one other thing about um Elsa LaRose that I don't think we've really mentioned yet was how she incorporates all this archival historic footage in there to kind of document the sort of the times that they lived through, which mm-hmm. were obviously very interesting. I mean, you've got, you know, the Spanish Civil War and World War Two, and, you know, and, and some of it's and not nothing extremely brutal, given some of the other footage that might have been chosen. But definitely a kind of a very grim i mean you've got hitler you've got mussolini you've got explosions and and chaos and destruction just sort of woven in as this uh you know history of you know th- three dozen years of marriage kind of weaves in and out i don't know this is the, an, interesting, an interesting touch that uh she she throws in there um again providing some kind of dramatic contrast to uh you know, as a backdrop for, for this, you know, very personal little story that she's weaving there. Yeah. She's, she's fantastic with her, uh, uh, B roll and like even the stuff she shot for the piece, you know, the choices she makes is, is always so non-typical for most documentaries. It's not a lot of times I've worked on documentaries where they're just, they make band-aids, they call it. We just got to seam, we got to make the seam. So just find something that covers that gap. Every single shot feels like it's something that is intentional and thought of for this section. And it's, uh, you know, including those uh, historical pieces, like they they blend well and match well with everything that they're talking about or what they're doing. And, it's uh, her the way that she goes about thinking about those things you can tell that there's a there's deep thought happening with with these ideas and these pieces and um and then she's not afraid to just uh, slap it together to experiment and try new things and that's what makes it so fun you know it's that deep process of preparation and then that allows you to just be a lot more free with your uh with the playfulness which i you know absolutely love I mean, I, I think <clears throat> I think that the the war stuff can be read both as a sort of apology for the florid, uh, over the top, uh, romantic prose uh, of Aragon. I mean, that's what people needed at that time, I guess. Yeah, you know. Um, but it can also be be un- you can also, I think, really underscore uh, the message that that I took away from from the short, which is that you know. This is what the reality is of of people trying to make it work. <laughs> you know, this is what a life is. Mm-hmm. And like in many ways, that's a much more powerful love story, you know, that they lived through all of this and, and this great upheaval through history and that they played their own role in that in that history. Um, then, you know your eyes are pools of uh, <laughs> glistening sunlit uh, ponds. You know what I mean? Like, it's just uh, there. I think there, there was a sense from Varda that, that like she wasn't going to take any bullshit uh, in this short. <laughs> it was yeah. going to be 
matter-of-factly about like who this couple was and their relationship and she wasn't really going to be concerned with even really why they were famous <laughs> yeah, I, I really wasn't aware about Demi having an assignment for the other kind of a parallel film there do you, do you think it's fair to speculate he might have backed down just to you know kind of sidestep the challenge of making a movie that maybe wasn't quite as uh intriguing or as compelling as what his wife did i don't know just a just a random thought uh, that and that and uh he's not known for any documentary type stuff so it might have just yeah. been something completely out of his field and uh it, it once you hear once you probably he heard uh anya's talking about what her thoughts and her ideas for this he probably was like oh i'm totally approaching this the wrong way i'm yeah. gonna get schooled <laughs> and probably you know i don't know if this is coming right off of umbrellas i think it probably must have been pretty close that he was thinking that's that's this is my groove you know which is yeah. big glossy musicals uh, you know tributes throwbacks that's what the audience wants and that's kind of where he's going to be yeah. focusing his I, attention about to give them another another classic in that in that field yeah. i like to think that he was uh, getting back at her for uh, le bonaire <laughs> <laughs> just like subtle like well that's how you think about me well fine i'm not gonna do this documentary <laughs> well i mean after she dedicated um this feature that we're going to discuss to him i uh-huh. wonder exactly how <laughs> wow yeah. how he felt uh after that um so so let let's um let's dive into to the the feature because this is um I, I'm going to just be honest with you. I think this is one of the most difficult movies that we're going to have to discuss yeah. uh, on on this season or maybe any of the seasons that we've uh, worked on. It is a, uh, a very dense and complicated film. Yeah. I Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm looking forward to sussing it out with the two of you because there's stuff in here that I'm just like, I don't know what the hell's going on here. Why did she make this choice? <laughs> um well let's let's go around at least and and get sort of initial thought well i should say just as a setup for this she wrote this um on the the island uh on which it was set um which is uh called uh nor normutier noirmutier i'm gonna go with the black monastery (laughs) that's what that translates into sounds pretty Um, goth yeah yeah, totally right (laughs) So this is a ta- uh, a town on an island um, where where Demi and Varda uh, had a had a house and they um, you know sort of retired there to work uh, to do work. I um, I read somewhere that the house was like an abandoned windmill or something. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just like a beach place. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a a unique little piece of architecture. I don't know if it was i think it might have even been used in the film i don't know i i, I really yes, wish i had yeah, done a little bit had a little bit more time to do some research on this let me just tell you how i wound up <laughs> finagling my way into this episode you know when uh when i was talking with <laughs> travis the other day after we were you know kind of wrapping up our little Bunwell section that we did about the discreet charm um i was just kind of you know getting a little bit more inside scoop on what you guys had planned for the complete Varda and I said well you know I'm, I'm willing to jump on as a guest and so he kind of said well here's the episodes that are already kind of you know either recorded or or whatever and and so the creatures was the first earliest one on the list and it was really just the casting I say oh my gosh Catherine Deneuve yeah. Michelle Piccoli and then you throw in um uh 
Ava Dahlbeck. Uh, yeah, Ava Dahlbeck. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Ava Dahlbeck. I mean, that, that name just jumped out at me. I don't know why it's based on it for a second, but it's like, and then I read a little bit more about it. I was like, this is kind of a quasi-science fiction thing, and it's just, you know, it's one of her least seen films. It's like, I'm there. This sounds really fascinating and fun. <laughs> and I definitely understand maybe why it is one of the least viewed or maybe the least viewed of her feature films. But I'm really glad that I got in on this because I, I really grow, grew to, you know, love this movie. I'm not going to say it's a classic or a must-see, but uh, it is it is really fascinating. And uh, yeah, like Travis said, I'm very eager to hear your thoughts on it. Maybe between the three of us, we can put together some kind of a coherent theory <laughs> that, that explains it. Yeah. I'm with you, David. I en- I enjoyed this quite a bit. I'm curious if how Travis feels about it. Um, because yeah, it's it's not a movie that it's. I mean, I don't think that I could recommend it to anybody, <laughs> even yeah, though I liked it. You need to be on like a very specific wavelength. Like I, I watched this three times, and each time I got more frustrated with it. Oh, okay. Um, well, I thought it got yeah, I got no, better. I mean, but well, go ahead. well yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. thing. Like it, it's weird. I got more frustrated with it because I started seeing like I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't in the right mindset, but. I felt like I started seeing things was like, why did she drop the ball on this? Why did she not follow through with that? Like, I just felt like it was unnecessarily confusing at points. Like, mm-hmm. like it, pushing the new wave style of editing to a point where I was like, wait, what? Why? Why is this happening? Why did we cut away to this? Like are we really going to make this a theme? Is this really like the symbol we're using for this? This seems, but I know she's super intelligent and she knows what she's doing. So I had to keep on saying, all right, well, no, she's taking me somewhere. Just follow along. Let's see where it goes. And then every time the choice, a new choice was made, I was like, what, why is that (laughs) choice being made? (laughs) No, this doesn't, this doesn't work. And then I just, I got super frustrated. And I mean, I liked, I liked the, like, the casting, that's like you said, David, the casting really like won me over. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then, you know, and I know the intent, you know, it's uh, Agnes Varda is saying something when she casts Catherine Deneuve and doesn't let her talk. Yeah. <laughs> like something is being said here, but it gets lost on me <laughs> throughout the film because I'm like, oh, why, like, I honestly, like, truly, I believe that this story would have been better served as her being the central character with her point of view about everything else going on. But that's where my frustrations lie. I had a hard time meeting it at its level. And so I look forward to hearing positive takes on this so I can kind of dig my way through some of my issues with it. Yeah, I mean, I, the a big reason why this was not seen for for so long you know other than the fact that it was not commercially successful um on its release or critically for that matter um was that it was pretty much unavailable um in in any format other than film um for for many decades and in the u.s uh, or really on any home video until this um complete Varda set came out. So it was very difficult to see. Um, I think part of that probably was the international funding for it. Um, Cause it was the woman, financed by Sweden. Yeah. The woman who, uh, who uh, produced it um, 
was uh, Italian, but I think she made most of her movies in France. She uh, produced um, Umbrellas of Cherbourg. So uh, she sort of produced the, you know, so they knew each other. And so she, you know, that was part of the reason why she got involved in the film in the first place. Um, and I think, you know, she had that kind of cachet that she could pull in these, uh, these big uh, stars to be in this film. Um, Deneuve obviously knew Varda from uh, Cherbourg. Uh, Pipoli would go on to, to be in Young Girls of Rochefort as well. Um, his career is just beyond any, I mean, like the people that he worked with and the films that he worked on, um, really just a, an, an insane career. Uh, yeah, he's becoming like in my upper tier of European actors as, of his era, you know, like if he's in it, I want to check it out. I'm just curious. Yeah. yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Well, I know we, we both share an affection for, um, uh, the Ferrari film, yeah. Dillinger is Dead. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. A life-changing film for me, truly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, that made it sort of a, a mystery to a, to a lot of people. Um, but, yeah, I mean, viewing it, you, when you hear, you know, sci-fi uh, uh, marriage movie, from Varda starring Catherine Deneuve and Michelle Piccoli, you think you have a completely, at least I did have, have a completely different image of what that would look like in my head. I'm thinking, well, why isn't this as big as Alphaville, you know, something like that? Yeah. Cause it's kind of in that same thing. And then Truffaut went on to do uh, Fahrenheit, you know, uh, right. Well, and, and Renee did uh, Je t'aime, Je t'aime. Mm -hmm. There was actually a, a good piece online about, putting this in the context of the other new wave sci-fi films that, that had been made at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, you know, the difference for me between those films and these, although I, I don't think uh, all of those movies are successes. Uh, I have a strong affection for Je t'aime, Je t'aime, but um, I think the difference here is that, that I don't, get the sense of the internal logic being consistent in this movie. And I think m maybe Travis, that's your frustration with the film. Like it doesn't feel like, um, there's a structure built that is, um, that, that is, is carrying state. over from yeah. scene to scene and moment to moment. And, you know, I think if we go to the place that it seems like, uh, a lot of people go and, and that Varda is kind of hinted at of the idea of this being about the sort of artistic process. You know, you can throw it a bone in a sense by saying, well, the artistic process is messy, but I, I try not to. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah, try it's not hard. to. Uh, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to give her that all the way through. That's a lot of rope. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of rope. It's a, it's a, it's a lot of leeway because I think the, the, the parts are so dis, dis, disparate, like. You know, you have you have a feeling the the movie feels at the at the outset like it's a horror film, like there is like there's yeah. huge tragedy and this island is like, it's it's something gr like greater like so there's this sense that there's this dread and then it looks like an art house film with the style of editing it's using its symbolism the way that it's being filmed it's got you know it but it but the dialogue and the plot is like a 
a really cheesy mystery sci-fi pulp, which I know is is like there. Lots of those pulps were huge in France at the time, and you even see uh, Piccoli picking up uh, like one of those like tales to thrill type uh, type type uh, you know yellow paperbacks. Um, you know, off the shelf, and then he has a whole stack of them on his desk as he's writing. So you know, th- the idea came from that that world, but it doesn't jive with the rest of the world because then you've got a cast of just gorgeous human beings that you're like, <laughs> I want to see these people do stuff, but then they're it's unsatisfying what they do sometimes. And then, <laughs> you know, some of the acting and some of the side characters are so over the top sometimes that I'm just like, okay. And then my brain starts fighting with what is the reality? What is the fiction? And the cinema language, she doesn't give you the easy understanding of what is. And I know there's lots of films where there's this idea of a fantasy world and a reality blending. And you have a character who's, is they are they losing their mind? Can they not figure it out? And the whole thing ends up for me, me just going, Catherine Deneuve died in the car accident. Michael Piccoli thought of this whole movie while sitting up in that tower waiting for the tide (laughs) to change so he can go back to shore. Like, nothing in this movie is real except for him sitting up there by himself. Like, that's the only thing I could go, now everything makes sense to me because it's the only logic that I can place because... You know, the way Catherine is filmed, the way she's dressed, the way she's styled, it's like she's a ghost or an angel. Like she doesn't exist in this world that is his fantasy world because she's not written into his stories like the other people on the island. And she's not, you know, she can't say anything and she has no interaction with anyone until the doctor towards the end. end, And that's the only part where she actually speaks. So it becomes... It becomes so like, okay, well, what is the reality? What is the fiction? So on the second viewing, I'm now looking at it through that lens. And after like 45, 50 minutes in, I'm like, (laughs) there is no reality or fiction. It's blended too much. Like I can't tell you what is real and what isn't. Like I can see that some of these flashes are his inspiration or his thought. I tried going, okay, maybe when he's in his sweater, that's his writing sweater. (laughs) And when he's in his jacket, that's the fantasy world jacket because he's a tough private eye type character. And nope, that doesn't hold water either. (laughs) So I just really like, I felt out to sea on this. And so it became like, so the third viewing became even more contentious. I'm like, I'm going to fucking figure this out. It's the last thing I do. And I wasn't letting anything wash over anymore. And I just kind of trenched in. And that made the third viewing just even more like, damn you. <laughs> and then Matt, to, to go on what you said earlier about how it was so hard to find a print of this movie. It's because she took all the film strips and made a, right. a shack well, called too, yeah. my shack of my failure, shack of failure. Yeah. <laughs> for an installation piece, which may be even more like, OK, so she even understands that this is something that didn't work because she never returns to this style or this type of film or this yeah. genre of film. And I can understand because like like David said at that time. There was lots of new wave sci-fi films happening. And so it's easy to see you're kind of saying, oh, well, let me, uh, everyone else is having these successes. Let me try something in that world as well. And it, it has a, definitely her stamp on it. There's lots of themes that, she, that continue. Um, we talked earlier about like uh, 
Catherine Deneuve being silenced uh, after she had clearly said, please slow down. No one listens. You know, it's like it's like Ripley at the beginning of Aliens. Don't let them on the ship. We're breaking. Don't follow that protocol. And then everything goes to hell because some dude knows better. It's the same thing here. Hey, slow down. No, I know better. I like to go fast. And then everything goes to shit for them. So there is that sense of, you know, uh, a strong male not listening to his partner and they suffer for it, which is weird because if there is truth, there is if, if the truth parts of this movie, not the fiction part, the sci-fi fiction parts, um, he has completely glossed over this tragedy and is really trying to just be like, oh, come on, let's forget about it. Why? Don't think about that. Let's uh, let's move on. It's all good. I have this giant like scar on my head that looks like a vagina crab but we're gonna just you know it's all okay this is where my my ideas are being born from and so that's the symbolism (laughs) of my vagina scar on my head and so it becomes like some of it is so like over the top hitting you on the head with the symbolism that it doesn't like it just it's so disparate in its parts that i had a hard time piecing it together to make a to make something that i could cling to i guess Mm. Sorry, everyone. Oh, I'm a downer on this. Uh, no, that's <laughs> no, fine. I guess I probably I I just sort of set aside the the need to figure it out or to yep. make something coherent. Yep. This out was of a Mulholland Drive for right. Me. Well, yeah. and this is Agnes Farda kind of in her sandbox. You know, she just got lots of different ideas. She's cobbling things together. Yeah. Uh, the you know, even though she wrote it, I this, this doesn't feel like a film where she had it all visualized from the get go. You know, she was right. probably improvising, putting pieces together, trying things out and in the telling of the story and the shooting and the assembly of it all it, it probably took on some directions that were not fully anticipated at the beginning um, so I basically just said okay Agnes just run with it show me what you got here yeah. and and I think if there's a criticism it's to to say that maybe she was just being a little bit too precious or maybe a little bit too full of herself but that's not an entirely unheard of thing in 1966 either, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's just exactly. like, let's just go for it. I mean, she 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 knows she's got talent. Uh, she's courageous, fearless enough to say, let's 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 throw it out there and and see how it goes. And I don't think that she had aspirations that this was going to be some you know blockbuster either. She she was you know not at a point where she was feeling the pressure to make big commercially successful types of hits this was this was her artistic expression working within the field within the discipline and and obviously this is the first time she's worked with noted name brand actors as well um where maybe you know she's using her connections rather than you know, studio or, you know, pressure from producers to say, okay, you need to go out and make this thing that's going to make us a bunch of money. I think the producer, the woman who produced Umbrellas, probably felt like she had some margins to experiment with, you know? And so that was kind of uh, the permission that Agnes Varda had to sort of, you know, follow her own muse. But then you're right, there's lots of ideas, lots of interesting commentaries, you know, from that very beginning scene where she's saying, you know, could you please slow down for my sake? He says, just trust me. I like to drive fast. The ideas come fast, you know, <laughs> yeah. famous last words, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, that, well, and that's the platform that it all is built on. I, I thought I thought Catherine Deneuve was dead. I mean, she doesn't I, show up for the next, like, ten minutes. I thought he so, too. he doesn't mention anything about her. 
you know? That's why yeah. I thought, like, that was part of his creation was I'm going to bring my wife back in my story yeah. and make her this person who can't speak because she can't speak anymore because she's dead. And so I had that, you know, and then what's the grandest thing I can do, the, the life I had unfinished, and have a child with her. So to have her show up at the end, yeah. and then I'm like, is this reality or fiction? And then it's almost like a damning comment having, once again, after we've seen all these men pull the strings and screw with everyone's lives, um, to have a, you know, a, son. a, a yeah. son being born and have that be the last line of the movie. It's a boy. And it's like, oh, man, it just continues. <laughs> like the uh, yeah. that, that idea of uh, controlling men and what they're willing to sacrifice for their inspiration, you know, and I got all that. Like, that's the thing. This is what, this is what makes it frustrating is I got a lot of these points and I could pick up a lot of this, the symbolism stuff. It just seems so, I I wonder sometimes if it's just the music, uh, like that, like if I, if I watched that movie silently, would I enjoy it better? Because I think the music sets me off in such a tense mode uh, yeah. that I'm yeah. tense the whole time, like wanting to know what's going on. And the creation of this music for this movie is absolutely fascinating. Did anyone watch the special features on, on yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The whole fact that it's a computer programmed... Well, it sounded like he was right. He he had some little device that he would just push buttons on, and that would punch holes in the card, and he would stack them up, and that's where you get this kind of random notation that is then given to various stringed instrument players, and they just follow the script and they mix it all together. I mean, it's not completely random, you know. It's 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 discordant, and you can see that, you know. But there's a pattern there. It's not just notes sprayed against the paper and then you just play wherever the no, ink lands, it's almost right? like it's almost like you tell an ai machine to draw you a picture and then you take that mm-hmm. like of what and what to draw and then you take that picture and go to an artist and say draw this picture for me but like with a human hand yeah yeah exactly and then you know they that was all the orca or orchestration uh was done that way but the the solo the violin that was all hand handwritten right so so it had a feeling of this is more organic and this is more feeling and then the other thing is more mechanical and uncontrollable and that works but i don't know if it works for this film in particular like it kind of kept me at arm's length quite a while which i can also see as being the choice made is i want to keep you at arm's length for a while so it's hard because it it, it felt like there were so many ideas that but not not a single one like really was yeah. the driving force, which then again, which this is what drives me crazy, also ties into her theme of the creative process, which then I'm like, but that also ties in. But did she really also think like that as well? Because then this is just maddening if if she's if she's that far ahead in steps that every single thing is intentional. It just kind of like that's when I start getting like, okay, now I'm just getting frustrated. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also like, I mean, it's like the end of adaptation where it's like, okay, I get it. The, the other brother died and took over, or, you know, the brother died, the other one took over and like wrote the, the like pulpy ending. But like, I don't want to watch the pulpy ending. I want to watch the good movie. Yeah. <laughs> Can you show me the good movie? <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, it's like, okay, creative process. That's great. But like, not all creative most creative processes are not fun to watch they're 
very <laughs> difficult to watch. And there are moments in, in this movie where it feels very difficult to watch because it is, you know, I mean, maybe digging too hard into that creativity. I mean, the movie did remind me also of um, uh, like other writer films. I mean, the uh, certainly Swimming Pool, mm -hmm. uh, the Ozone film uh, about a writer who creates a story and there's a ble bleeding of real and fiction. But the one that it really reminded me of is Bergman Island, the recent uh, Handsome Love film. I don't well, know I if you guys have watched I that seen, yet. I haven't, not, I haven't no. seen that yet. Oh, okay. I, I know yeah. uh, this movie has drawn comparisons by a lot of critics to Persona and Hour of the Wolf. There's a huge um, amount of Bergman in here, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you know, I don't know if that was intentional to have Ava Dahlbach in, in the film, but certainly, yeah. um, you know, to be on an island, the definitely the blurring of reality and fiction. I mean, and, and your point about the film opening like a horror movie, uh, I really feel like Bergman in the 60s was like all in on horror. I mean, most yeah. of his films from that, from that era could be read as horror or um you know are are at least uh trending in that direction um shame is another one that, that definitely came to mind for me watching this movie yeah. even though obviously it has a grander scale of conflict i had uh, through a glass darkly going on with kind of the yeah. exploitation of human definitely. suffering for the sake of artistic yeah. production yeah stuck on an island yeah and <laughs> yeah. and the spot the spider in the place of the crab i guess <laughs> I had, it all uh, connects now yes <laughs> there you go it's all uh i was thinking a lot of uh the field for me felt a lot like uh dryer's vampire like there's a lot of dream logic ideas going on in it and then there's this just this character kind of wandering through weird scene after weird scene and then there's this then he discovers that there's this controlling force controlling everyone on this in this area right you know with that and vampire then seven seal of yeah. course too like the the chessboard uh, yes the, the characters are being well see that on. part felt the most like a james bond type sci-fi well like, or the prisoner i yeah. thought oh, yeah it's kind of amazing yep. to me that the prisoner came out after this because it mm -hmm. felt very prisoner like yes yeah i had prisoner vibes as well so it was just something in the air i think during those mid-60s years. yeah, yeah. Well, that, that makes sense, I guess. I mean, certainly, like, computers, even though they weren't in the home yet, were sort of exploding um, in development on an institutional level. Yeah, um, video surveillance, kind of these monitors. The yeah. guy's monitors up in the tower where he can just watch the whole town and sort of, you know, jerk them around with his little magic silver discs. Yeah, but, you know, the other movie that I was reminded of the most, especially on the second viewing where I was a little bit more likely to just kind of sit back and enjoy the ride and not worry about what was going on, uh, was La Pointe Court. Like, there's a lot of, like, small town. I mean, there's even, like, you know, at the beginning, the families having, like, their fish stew uh, dinner, very similar to the beginning of Point Court. Like, and the, and the, the idea of this couple you know, arriving in the small, this small fishing town that's not, um, you know, that they're not a part of. It felt um, similar to that and just simply kind of shifted over in genres um, for, you know, it, it's like, what if that movie was controlled by uh, some evil unknown force? <laughs> yeah, no, I can see that. I think 
I, it started to feel that way with the level of kind of like realism with some of the fisherman stuff that she was cutting in, uh, the catches. Like, I do love that she consistently in the movie so far not only is telling a story but exploring a space or a yeah. or a, or a people and i think i i was enjoying that to a point and then once all the townspeople became characters in the game it kind of became less interesting cuz it stopped saying something about the area but um the, the the stuff she captured like I, I love the shot and I love the shot of uh, it's the two of them eating dinner together and we're pushing in slowly on them there's that crab that separates between them and we're cutting to two boats washed up on shore we're cutting to this like all this like visual information about kind of where their relationship might stand like they're not going anywhere they're stuck here they're trapped here um, and I you know and that's the kind of stuff that I like the most about the movie is when she is using the natural uh, landscape and the stuff that she found in that town or the creatures in that town to kind of help shape the emotional aspects of the story um, or the symbolic, symbolically emotional aspects of the story. Um, but yeah, I had a hard like I had a hard time sitting back and enjoying the ride. I don't know. My brain was just working too hard, I guess. So, you know, I love hearing that you guys enjoy it. I like, I, that's why I love talking to everyone. I like talking to you guys about <laughs> yeah, movies yeah. because we get to have these conversations and kind of like, I get to work through my trauma. <laughs> well, I, I, will say, I will say about the music, you know, like um, every once in a while I'm watching, uh, you know, one of, one of my um, obscure art house films and my wife is either in the room or, walking by and uh the music in this one she she just had to comment on (laughs) and it was frequent well well, and that's the thing i I can appreciate it just on this kind of well isn't that interesting or how esoteric you know or Uh or how arch you know but if you're just thinking about you know general movie audiences that are just going to see a show and this is the kind of stuff that's going to make people roll their eyes and groan and like come on get off it you know because you know that that scene you were just referencing or that that inner cut of them at the dinner table and then landscapes back and forth and when the landscape is on that's when the music is kind of you know shrieking along yeah Yeah. and then it's silent at the dinner table and it, it is both you know provocative interesting expressive but also just come on give me a break can we just get out of the story here so yeah i i do understand some of your frustration travis as far as what is this movie about because you really feel like once once the uh the mad scientist and the checkerboard is is introduced you're in a whole different movie i mean that certainly there's continuity yeah. in characters but what you thought you were having was sort of this examination of this kind of uh you know provincial you know beach town and the little scuttlebutt that's going on in the society you got those two comic bungling burglars that kind of throw this weird (laughs) note in there uh, with with some of the gossipy and backbiting stuff and of course the the husband wife tensions like is this a farcical comedy is this a you know kind of a ripping expose of small town you know small mindedness (laughs) or or you know locals that won't accept the outsiders the the struggling artist trying to make sense uh, in his self-imposed isolation and then you're right then you're into you know sci-fi wonderland 
Um, and and there are some interesting bits there, you know. And and again, I'm I'm enjoying the performances. How Ava Dahlbeck goes from being this kind of prim and proper uh, hostess of this little, you know, uh, cafe, her little uh, beachside resort thing, and then all of a sudden the red lights come on, and she's this vamping slut, you know, drop, <laughs> dropping yeah. her her sweater off the shoulder and flirting and making her her uh, boyfriend jealous and all of that. It's just you know, and and you know, watching the characters just kind of pivot back and forth on cue, and and what each character sort of suppressed corruption is like when it's finally activated how do they manifest it well there's the little girl you know tearing up the store and sticking her tongue out at the camera kind of a zazi <laughs> don la metro thing uh or or is it you know the the old man you know kind of the last that, that's when it gets brutal and that's when yeah. uh, edgar piccoli says that's enough it's time to end this game and it's like thank you i'm really glad that they did well, not yeah, take that, that scene to its re- yeah that was definitely like a viewer steps in kind of moment from him um it because because it it did seem all a little silly up until yeah. that point yeah you know all the sci-fi stuff and um you know she says uh in the in the intro to this one um that she felt like the 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 place where she went wrong was that she wasn't able to be as mean as she should have been yeah she yeah. didn't take it far enough like in in that sense yeah yeah that would not have helped well, at the box office. I just have to tell you. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people want violence. But it's an it's an interesting comment, both for that reason, but also because, um, I guess like for from my perspective, this is this did seem to be about the creative process, and it did seem to be about a little bit just about like stream of consciousness, like what else are we gonna do in this movie? Um, but if she really felt like she you know the 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 place she should have gone was darker and more aggressively cynical um then i'm not really sure i know what she thinks this movie was about or what she was trying to say with it well that's that's why i wonder because i mean she obviously had like even her other non-successes like you know the Bonaire was very controversial and very divided. Like there were a lot of people who just didn't like that film. She didn't make a shack of failure out of that film. You know what I mean? Like it's almost yeah. like she knows that there's something that didn't go right with this. Like her vision didn't like, it's almost like, like David said earlier, like she gotten to the point where she was in the editing room and she was kind of making decisions more to salvage than to like to me to me my my take mm. is more to salvage what she had as opposed to uh enacting the vision that she had you know what i mean like that that like just in in terms of some of the things because you can see that the thought process is in the movie but it doesn't it doesn't render fully out to the viewer um because there you know she was very well known in my mind and all the takes and all the films I've watched and the read the books I've read that she was very trusting of her audience to be intelligent. Like she, she, she would not dumb things down. It was all about like, meet me, you know, I'll meet you at your intelligence level because I trust you to be intelligent. And this movie, it's almost like she trusted too hard 
or she expected too much, or maybe she was trying to meet both at the basis, basic common denominator as well as high-minded, um, and it just it becomes very hard to find a uh, an eye-to-eye point to see with, and so, it, but it's but it's a uh, but it's great in terms of that. You know, she is experimenting, she is pushing, she's trying things. She is going from that, like, really low-level crude, the two uh, linen salesmen running around the castle, acting like idiots, leaving a dead cat behind, uh, and then also going into this, like, you know, uh, talking about this uh, gentleman who is a mastermind who's evil and 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 he delights in causing havoc and chaos to these people and you know this ultimate game of chess like death versus good you know good versus evil the man in black and the guy in white you know she's she's taking all these concepts that have become ingrained in kind of film in films like typical genre films and she's turning them on their head and poking fun at them and twisting them a bit which then you know it kind of becomes hard because then i latch onto that but that is not something that is also a a frivolous notion that quickly gets dispensed with and put somewhere else so it's almost kind of like i once had a friend who gave me the direction in an acting class your thoughts are like a top hat filled with chicken livers covered in jelly <laughs> and i was like what he goes exactly you can't grasp them and they're really hard for you to hold on to and i just like that always stuck with me and that's what this film sometimes feels like there have all these thoughts <laughs> that you really can't always hold on to because we're moving on to the next one and we're moving on to the next thing and we're going back and the idea that it's part of the creative writing process to me like there should be moments of strike that that sucks let's go back and let's start over at this point here or this needs tweaking this needs work on so let's kind of work on that too it all seems to like the creative process seems to linear in terms of i'm writing my story and i'm just coming up with these ideas and going as opposed there's no revision feeling to it which you know you know like you said with that example from adaptation there's a point where you're like okay this is obviously the point in the story where someone else has taken over the writing to make it more of a successful mainstream film. There isn't that feeling of him taking over and saying, Matt, this isn't working. Let's get rid of this character and let's figure out how to do this. Or So there's a bit of that kind of missing for me as well. So I don't know. I'm trying not to be the downer person. but oh, I'm, you, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how the, why they needed it to be in a top hat. Well, I don't know why I need to be a top hat. Like I said, my, my ideas were chicken livers that I couldn't hold on to. So... <laughs> Top Hat probably offers the most volume, you know. Yeah, you can fit a lot of chicken. Cylindrical. Over. I thought maybe I thought maybe it had to be fancy, like maybe you know the music. My, my in character movie is the Top Hat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I I wanted to ask you guys if you picked up on a little odd little connection here. I think I think that's something deliberate. I don't really know what they made of it. Another idea. Uh, the the villain is Monsieur Ducasse, right? And there's a at one point. Uh, do you guys know Isidore Ducasse? Have you heard of? He's a writer, the Comte de l'Autremont. Uh, he wrote the Song of Maldoror. He was a young Uruguayan poet from like the late 1800s who died at age 24. But he wrote two books, and one of them, uh, the Songs of Maldoror, was uh, 
very beloved by the early surrealists it's it's a it's a it's a it's it's kind of canticles of extreme depravity kind of like a marquis de sade or baudelaire's Ah, flowers of evil and so at one point um the the piccoli character is reading a book and it's got l'autremont at the top uh, that you know comte l'autremont was the was isidore ducasse's pen name and I definitely recommend that you guys, if you ha- if you're not familiar with it, just look it up, you know, Wikipedia or whatever. I think the text is in public domain, so you can find it online. And it, it's just, you know, um, it, it's very very florid, over the top, but but in terms of depravity and evil and just any kind of nasty thought and atrocity that that you could imagine is put into this French poetic verse. You know, very very uh, kind of just elaborately structured uh you know kind of almost redundant in how how sick and depraved it's trying to be and so that was just an interesting little wow. tidbit there um you know, giving the name ducasse and then using uh, referencing the text of l'autremont but it's just like a, in one scene and that's just another little notion that because I, I i first heard of that book in the 70s but i could imagine it probably had a little bit of a circulation in the you know, in the artistic and bohemian circles, you know, probably yeah. throughout the 20th century. And so just just a, an odd little, you know, offhand reference there. But I figured, well, where was she going with that? There, I don't think it was a coincidence that he just happened to pick up that book, you know, off of a stack yeah. while he was being shot with it showing in the frame. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, we just watched a film where we just watched a short where she's uh, in, entrenched in surrealism poetry. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that that you know is intentional. That's what I, that's why, like, that's what I said earlier. Like, I feel like there was a lot of thought put into this, but it didn't piece together for me. I think the way that maybe she intended as well. So I don't know. Like, I mean. Obviously the obviously the art department was was totally killing it. They got as many checkerboards as they could fit into this movie. Like yeah. someone was there was a one guy looking at the other one saying, "Pierre, you did a fantastic job." He's like, "I got checkerboards on everyone at least once in this film." And they're high-fiving. And yeah. <laughs> Well, that that was the high high era of op art there. So, uh, I'm sure the fabric was on sale at the local uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, there yeah, I, I mean, he is kind of say, a satanic figure. Oh, sure, us. yeah, yeah. And and I and I think Piccoli is certainly intent. And who who, by the way, is named Piccoli in the films? Yes. And first name um, Edgar, like Edgar Allan Poe, or what? What was it? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, is is basically the god in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that sense that they're like you know dueling for for souls. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think like the individual scenes in those moments are, are, uh, weird, (laughs) very (laughs) funny and, and, uh, enjoyable. I mean, I think like the scene with like the loving couple where the guy like just, you know, has to randomly like rifle through her purse to take money. Yeah. Um, so silly, but... (laughs) Very funny. And I like how that plays um, out, that uh, she doesn't care, yeah. and she splits yeah. the money with him, even though it's hers, and they laugh about it. Right. She's just yeah. there for a good time, and it's yep. like, yeah, take my money. Let's just keep having fun, right? But the the big uh, sort of right-hand turn uh, when when this guy is revealed and they start playing the, the, the game is actually like the 
the second big weird development in the movie because the first one is the first time that it turns red Mm -hmm. and that is very shocking yeah 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 it's just not something i anticipated and it's especially shocking i think because uh well varda uses color so well um in her previous film um but this looks a lot like cleo in the sense of being like super blown out um very what like bright whites uh, mm. and deep blacks um so when that color comes it's it's a a big shock um and obviously like it involves a dead cat so that doesn't hurt either in the shock department <laughs> well and it's and it's and it's you know it's it's like a tinted frame from an old black uh, old silent film when yeah. you know it's not it's not a you know the scene's not in color but it's just it's tinted the whole way through and and it's funny because later when they're having their chess battle, uh, when the bad guy's, you know, using it for anger, everything turns bright red. And when he uses it for um, controlling his characters to do the right thing or to do something that kind of sets them on a better path, his are soft pink, which uh, which I find to be, you know, very interesting, almost kind of like a more feminine choice. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which uh which is nice you know it's a it like I, I, that's us the more i talk about this where i'm like see see she's making great choice there's this thing here there's this thing here but then it's like all of a sudden it turns into a heist film and you're watching those two bumbling uh linen guys try to <laughs> you know create the you know heist and do a quick switcheroo of a car is almost like a mission impossible style thing and it's super it's fun for a second but then that it's you know what it is it feels like a uh I always had problems with the anthology films, like just anthology films in general, because the themes keep changing and you never are entrenched long enough in a story to fully enjoy it. And then you have the bookend or the wraparound sections that sometimes are just are so specific to be able to tell those little short film stories that it becomes fully unsatisfying by the end. It's almost like this movie has so many like little anthology shorts in it that i'm like ah it's kind of really hoping for a bigger theme and well there's just there's just not quite the mastery of the craft to to tie it all together with a bow that says i'm in command this is exactly the film i wanted to make this is the message the story the impression i i meant to leave it's more a collection of bits some of which just don't stick the landing but you you ride with it anyway so you, you you admire the effort or the fact that you haven't seen anything quite like this before. And that's basically where yeah. I came down with yeah. this movie. It's like it's a like very a, interesting kind of a, it's like a, a, a demo reel or a, or a jam yeah. session of Agnes Varda. I mean, it's, it's more polished than that. I'm not saying she's yeah. completely screwing around. But, you know, um, she she's no, out there on a limb. Like and, a box of yeah. ephemera, just kind of. I mean, to her to her point, it's a, it is a failure. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's a film that didn't, you know, quite work the way she wanted it to work. I mean, from my perspective, I'd rather watch a failure like this than the average, oh, like, okay. I watched movie. this movie three times. That says yeah. a lot about it. Like, <laughs> I wanted to, like, maybe I tried too hard to want to understand where I've watched movies once and never see them again and forget about them in a year. I'll still be thinking about this movie 10 years from now because it, it, it does leave an impression. It does make yeah. it does make your brain try to work overtime to do some things and you know that's that's well, fantastic and that's what i like about that 
just the sheer fun of watching Michelle Piccoli and Catherine Deneuve make kissy face on several occasions. Was, <laughs> that's pretty cool. I, I'm sure when Piccoli saw the script, it's like, yeah, caress and uh, Catherine Deneuve. I'm, I'm there, you know, the wind oh, show she's, up. She's so stunning to look at. Oh, like, my gosh. I just, yeah. it's, uh, just, yeah. it's one of those things that I, you know, it's it's hard it's it's hard to be objective when looking at her. <laughs> sure, sure. And and Ava Dahlbeck, I've really certainly admired yeah, her. Lovely. And and I really I really appreciate what she brings to this role because she does have a sort of a grounding warmth and and uh, you know the the scenes with her and the older gentleman. Uh, there's some interesting dynamics going on there, uh, interesting commentary on kind of male female relationships and uh, power plays and the dynamics of the older man who's almost asking her to feel sorry for him because his life was set in stone and what else can he do and you're the best part of my day but she says well you are as well but I'm all alone so much of the time. And then, of course, when he turns red, he becomes just the nastiest, misogynistic, you know, almost on the verge of rape, you know, just for that for that minute. And again, that that inner character comes out. So yeah, there's some there's some pretty sharply barbed messages mm-hmm. and takeaways uh, from from each of those little moments. Yeah, yeah, I thought the scenes with with them were some of the strongest in the film, um, and I think generally what you guys are saying, you know. The, the the three stars in the film are used really well yes i think like she, so you know even if the movie itself doesn't come together i think that having their presence in the film what is uh very useful um and and then you know to have um uh, Nino Castelnuovo yeah. mm-hmm. in the movie mm-hmm. as well the uh the co-star of of Cherbourg um very conscious decisions on her part that i think are are you know reflective of varda's general um sly playfulness uh as well yeah and the the subsequent careers that they all went on to have obviously creates sort of a retroactive intrigue to sort of see this early performance of Catherine Deneuve Piccoli before he was really had fully established himself and even Agnes Varda herself I mean she was still you know a fairly obscure director big within her scene and people who knew her recognized wow she's talented she's she's got some exceptional uh, abilities uh, but she was far from the kind of iconic figure that she's become over the past several decades yeah and she really didn't get to make another big film in france for a decade after this um i i I definitely knew a little bit of what i was getting into with this movie because um the i wanted to see it for some time and then couple of years ago uh richard brody wrote like a glowing review of it hmm. and i was like oh dear <laughs> yeah <laughs> i like double-edged way, sword I really, there right? really love richard brody sure. and like some of his tastes but like when he singles out a movie like this <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be weird yeah he's gonna he's gonna Get inflate ready. expectations and maybe set you up for kind of a, a prank or something like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um the i mean the other thing uh we've touched on a little bit but just uh the cinematography in this film i think is really impressive oh, yeah. it is. Um, beautiful. 
and uh, it's actually it's uh, William Lubchansky's first film as a cinematographer. He he was the co-cinematographer on it. Um, yeah, I recognize again, the name. What else has he done? Can you kind of? He he was a, a major guy, uh, sort of across Europe. But he worked with um, Straub and Houlette, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing. He worked on a lot of Rivette's later work, okay. so Duel. He did La Belle Noisus. Um, I'm going to bastardize all of these names. <laughs> um, no, Matt, you're doing he, Trey he, Magnifique. He, <laughs> uh, Ponte Nord, you know, all, a lot of Rivette's later work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he also did Sicilia, um, the, the Straubin Houlette film. Um, but just a you know, pretty major guy. Um, that actually the first non-feature that he did was Elsa La Rose. Um, so, you know, just, um, I think again, Varda just sort of instinctually, uh, has a, a real great sense for picking talent, obviously, mm-hmm. but also just an eye for, for cinematography and, and the feel that a film needs, um, depending on what what it's covering yeah she does a she does a good job of not i mean she kind of builds a a community but she doesn't rely on the same people for the same jobs over and over again which is which is fun that's that's part of the artistic thing right you're picking your you're picking your tools to tell this story and you you know you're picking the the other artistic people that you want to collaborate with to tell a specific story which is uh which is nice, you know. It could have been scored by the same people who scored Cleo, or, you know, she could have gone with the soundtrack like Le Bonheur, like from a specific uh, composer. But you know, she made choices specific to this uh, this idea, which I, which is also one of her one of her many gifts. You know, the ability to kind of spot that, like you said. It is interesting just to think about like, what if this movie was was scored by Legrand, <laughs> you know, like yeah. w- would that, that would totally transform this film completely, completely. I mean, maybe not for the better, but I just think like, it's funny to think about like how much the music sort of informs. The yeah. Tone Cause of this, of this yeah. it could, it could be a, it, it, this could be a bit more madcap and comedic, but the music yeah. turns it into such a dour, gothic kind of feel that it's hard to kind of escape that mood so that that that's you know having that juxtaposition of this really dark music you know in some parts and just kind of against these images of you know the girls playing dress up and you know mm-hmm. but but even that that's sinister you have these two girls playing princess with all these dolls and you're kind of like Oh, okay, you know that's kind of nice. You know, they're having their, they have this their little clubhouse or something. Then you realize it's in that the sick twisted guy's uh, tower, and you're like, okay, well this is kind of messed up. Like, <laughs> and it's messed up that the author has decided to write these two girls who look like they get into mischief on their bikes as pawns of this evil guy. Like, <laughs> which is also kind of like messed up on on their part too. You know. Yeah, the music I was I was just kind of looking them up here. So it was Toro Takamitsu from Japan. It's this kind of felt like it was kind of coming out of that very angular, very stylized uh, frame of reference. Obviously, you know uh, this director. Pierre Bodard is, is that his mm-hmm. name? Uh, Bar Barbode. Barbode. Okay, right. Barbode. Um, yeah. He you know he's obviously not coming from the same cultural background as Takamitsu, but it still had that same kind of sharp angular 
you know, edginess to it. And uh, yeah, that's just another, as you're saying, sort of the, the music sort of creates the vibe, the atmosphere. I, I think that's a pretty, pretty good point and one that seemed to suit her vision for what she wanted this movie to be, which was something that felt futuristic, a little more yeah. technolo- technologically mm-hmm. advanced, uh, making use of some of the the new you know mechanics and, and, and uh, abilities to record, to capture images, uh, video monitors, things of that sort. Yeah, I believe he did a lot of um, Renee's early work, mm. um, so I think that was a big uh, a big part of his career. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking him up now. Yeah, he did uh, Hiroshima Monomore mm-hmm. um, and, and Le Chantu Styrene, uh, which is an early short of Renee's, which is uh, similarly um, experimental in musical stylings. It's a really uh, interesting short on Criterion Channel that I recommend. Um, I think he refer- all- refers to himself as an engineer of musical emotion. He no longer refers to himself as a composer at this part of his career, he said. <laughs> Which made me laugh, because when Varda's talking about him, she kind of like like a nod, a wink, and a kind of wry smile. She says, oh, you know, when he used to be a composer, you know. <laughs> and she's like, kind of like, you know, now he's something different. <laughs> but he, he's, yeah, he's making my music. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is a, I mean, this is a tough nut to crack. I'm not. I'm. I don't think we're we're gonna crack it anytime soon. But I do. It's a tough shell do, to crack. Crab. Yeah. <laughs> hard hard shell crab. Well, but once you crack it open, there's some good stuff. There's some nice there little is. nuggets to savor. So I guess that's uh, that's our overriding metaphor. Oh, the creatures. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's definitely there's definitely there's lots of tiny things to latch onto in this movie, and. It's like I may sound like grumpy about it. I'm not grumpy about it. I'm just I want I guess my expectations for it. I kept on trying to have the film meet my expectations over and over as opposed to like you like you gentlemen just letting it wash over and kind of mm-hmm. enjoying it for what it is. And I think probably if I revisit this movie again, it could be months from now, it could be a couple of years down the road. I might completely take away with it with like, oh, okay, this is just fun. Like, I'm just having a good time with this. Yeah, And the locations, too. That's another piece. Just the, the very interesting place that she found to make this movie. Though these Some of these are kind of, you know, pretty pretty formidable buildings. You know, these these old, the towers and, and just... I love the tower. Yeah, the tower's the gorgeous. Yeah. And, yeah. and the interiors, these kind of scuffed up, you know, scuzzy old walls with all kinds of imperfections, even the doors, the, the, the way the paint is chipped, the bookcases, just, you know, it's just a very visually satisfying, you know, most frames are something interesting is going on there, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, you're, you know, the images, just, just kind of the, you know, the, the lighting, you know, it's just, it's just a very satisfying, to me it was at least a very satisfying exploration of kind of a, a maybe a transitional or or a kind of a, a you know kind of moving up the learning curve uh, process for for Ms. Varda yeah yeah that's definitely what it feels like it's a it's a stretching out of her comfort zone um in a way that I think you know continually displays her uh 
talent and abilities. Um, but, um, you know, I think she rightfully stepped back into, (laughs) into her comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, although, you know, I mean, I think she continued to push for sure. Um, Oh, she never became complacent or, or kind of formulaic. It's just, yeah, this is maybe a road less traveled on the, on the TV. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. Um, anything else that people want to touch on for this one? I, I did like, it's, it's a running theme at this point, I did like the inclusion of television in her, in this as well. Um, she did that in Le Bonheur. We didn't really talk about that. Uh, we talked a little bit about it, about the film she was yeah. showing. But once again, there's this idea that uh, TV is a community building thing. It's almost like early championing for, you know, television to be an accepted art form kind of thing, which was kind of a weird statement, but it's also the future and <laughs> which is which is weird. It's a sci-fi show and then the the whole island has one TV in the hotel that they all gather to watch. And I, I, I like that. I like uh, going back to Ava Dahlbeck's character. I like that she was trying to build a community that went beyond the touristy stuff. Like she says, you know, tourist season's coming up. We're going to close soon. And at this point, all we have is marketeers and fishermen. But she's just as welcoming and serviceable to the townspeople as she is to probably the guests of the hotel. And I like that. I like that in terms of her character because it it helps with her uh, how welcoming and how forgiving she is, which, you know, makes the the turn that happens later with her uh with her lover be so much more despicable because she has become this really kind of good the good a good character in the yeah. in the show which uh which you know I appreciate so I did like that I like that little that little touch of having something that brings the community together with the television and and her character is kind of stuck there you know she's there as mm-hmm. a good daughter taking care of her elderly father she really doesn't want to be there she figures once he's passed then she will get out of there so but another sort of commentary on gender roles and expectations yeah and it almost and the tvs obviously balanced with the other tvs that are watching Mm -hmm. you know that this guy has viewing the community trying to tear them apart yeah and i like you know going david what you're saying about ava's character is like and then she almost flips it on her head at the end by being the one like like I'm running the place now. It almost sounds like she's taken full ownership and like she's decided that this is gonna be her place. And then taking on the young guy as a as a winter helper. Right. But it almost sounds a bit saucy, like she's left the oh, old man behind totally. and she's gonna just have her way with this young guy for the for the winter and have fun finally. Like give up this idea of this chase love that she can't always have or this uh that was definitely the oh vibe total vibe saying. right she's just like you know what hey guess what i just decided i'm gonna take your son <laughs> for the winter just it's cool i'll feed him don't worry <laughs> <laughs> i like that because that was a bit of a you know she's gonna she's gonna get hers which is nice um so i guess that's i guess that's the creatures um <laughs> travis it sounds like this is going to be at the bottom of your pack for ranking here. Right now it is. It's only, and only because it's, you know, like I, we have we have something like 22 more movies to watch. It might move around a <laughs> bit uh, if I watch it again. Like if I get the, if I get an itch to watch that movie one more time. I think it was, uh, you know, I I appreciate for what it is. I appreciate the the fact that she is stepping out of a 
kind of like a a tract that she's making for herself in terms of her themes and her her uh, her style. Like she's she's pushing out of her style comfort, which I think she doesn't like re- retract back into her style as much as realize that she can hone that style more efficiently and and uh, more uh you know just just be a better filmmaker in terms of the thing of of her of her uh main concerns you know so having this sidestep this experiment kind of come and it's early in the career too you know that's the other thing this is this is film four for her like in terms of her so totally and like every other director that you know everyone has these experiments these wide swings that they take to try something different to get them out of their boxes and i you know i don't falter for it and i don't think not everybody can can make persona exactly and when that happens and i don't think persona was not ingmar bergman's fourth film either exactly (laughs) exactly (laughs) you know he took you know him breaking that you know it's this wasn't uh, Bob Dylan at Newport, you know. He all of a sudden going electric, <laughs> you know. But it was, yeah. it was, it was a, it was an experiment, and I, I prefer like we, we've said I think a bunch of times on our uh, Kieslowski stuff. I would prefer to watch uh, Agnes Varda try something new than half of the movies I've seen this year. You know, I yeah. pre- much prefer what we. Like, I watched it three times this week. Like, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. if I hated it and it wasn't worth, yeah, yeah I wouldn't have bothered right. with it. And so it's it's important to. It's important to keep watching. Like what we do in this podcast, it's important to watch as much of the person's work as we can to get a really good sense of who that person is as a director, what their concerns are what their ideas, the path that got them here. Because I'm sure there's going to be echoes of this film in later films of hers that I'm going to pick up on and make this movie become more appreciated in my estimation. Yeah, I mean, even if it's the opposite instinct that she goes with uh, next time, I think that there's probably a lot in here. I mean, she we one thing we didn't say is this movie was kind of called The Creatures of Agnes Varda mm-hmm. in the title card mm-hmm. uh, for the film, and then she said she added for ja- for Jacques. So I don't know <laughs> they, they need to work that out themselves. <laughs> they work it out in the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I think um, uh, I think you're right. Like this is uh, a movie that. I think will help inform the rest of her career, which is why she revisited it in such a sort of uh, grandiose and comedic fashion in an art installation. Yeah. Um, so for me, I think this is a more um, rich and compelling film than Point Kurt, even if that film is more modest in ambition and therefore success, more successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think kind of probably the way that I like to think about it is like if those two movies were playing at the same time in a movie theater and I could only see one on the big screen, I would probably go see this. You know, that's what that's what's funny, Matt, because this isn't the bottom of my list. Point Court is still because this is I watched a Point Court three times. And by the third time, I was I was getting a little bored with it. <laughs> yeah. This one, I was still completely uh, just yeah there's a lot in, inside of it because yeah. there is there's so much to to watch so i do have uh point court creatures cleo Le Bonaire. like that's my order of right now hmm. 
That sounds pretty reasonable, yeah. Yeah, we didn't even talk about his Dr. Doolittle bit, you know, talking to the animals. Oh, my, God. <laughs> oh my goodness. How did we forget How that? can we forget that he's talking to animals? <laughs> talking to a horse, and he's and, but those, he's, he's not, the horse isn't speaking English, he's speaking horse. Incredible. Uh, yeah. Yes. And, and, y- your horse is excellent, he says. <laughs> the horse says. Yeah, to and him. the rabbit, you yeah. know. Or the, the yeah. rabbit. The rabbit says your rabbit is excellent. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, he says, That's tell me a story, but tell happening. it in horse. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> Those moments, like, um, they come so out of left field that for a second it's disorienting. And, and You're like, what's gone. going on here? Yeah. It's like, wait, can we talk? Can we talk? I know we're at, a, I know we're all watching a chessboard right now, but can we talk about the horse? <laughs> <laughs> I really wish the horse and the rabbit were also two characters that they could control. Yeah, and I think, like, why don't we just have, like, a whole movie? It's like the Mark Wahlberg talks to animals SNL skit. I want to see Michelle Piccoli talks to animals. Uh, That's the feature I want to see. Uh, there were there never was lake creatures. Yes, <laughs> yeah, there could be. Maybe there's maybe there's like eight of those scenes on the cutting room floor, yeah. and they'll be discovered later on. He talks to a there's, cat. There's a goat. There's a sheep. Yeah, <laughs> talks to a pigeon. Oh, it'd be great. Yeah. Talks to a crab. That's he. He needed. To, we needed to have yeah, the trip. There was no. The crab never talked. No, no. The crab would have been important. Yeah. David, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? Uh, well, you know, just my love of, of all things 60s, especially those, you know, 65, 66, 67, and then 68, those, and that kind of starts to taper off. But this is just kind of another magnificent flourish of mid-60s, you know, culture, just all the cool stuff that was going on at that time. This was what Agnes Varda's 66 was all about, and that's a pretty great year for a great artist. And so, yeah, I, I did enjoy the opportunity just to sort of delve into this little obscure back corner of her catalog, and it, I think it bodes well for the future, and I'm eager to listen to you guys talk uh, about the other films coming up as we... Uh, move through this series it's a great project and i'm gonna be very uh quick to pounce on it once you start publishing these and uh, we can follow along all over again well thank you so much david and thank you uh, so much for taking your time to be on the show i think it's a great point um you know as as much as we might think this movie worked or didn't work to have a film like this um with with at least one pretty big time movie star and a couple of of people you know who were either on the up up and coming or sort of plateaued um to have them in a film like this that gets major uh a major release um and you would be able to go see it in a movie theater like what a what a time to be a a movie goer so um yeah it's a real a real treat in that regard i agree and i think with that we're complete for another week (laughs) Thank you.